Now we begin this class. Are you ready? All right, so we're going through the New Testament. We've gone through the Old Testament. We've had a chance to to do this on a, a survey level. And by that, not a typical life group or Sunday school survey level, but more about what we might do if we were studying this in, in some type of a, of a college, university, or seminary setting as a basic survey course. In the New Testament, we've made it through the Gospels, and we were about to start Acts. And I thought it might be useful before we started Acts to take just a moment to understand one of the central characters in Acts. In the first half of Acts, Peter is clearly a central character. In the second, actually two-thirds or so of Acts, Paul is clearly the dominant character. But there is one other character dominant throughout Acts, beginning to end, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so if we're going to study Acts, I thought it'd be useful for us to do it. So the way I approached this was to go back to John's discourse in, 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 of Jesus' last conversation with his apostles. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus in five places during that three-chapter discourse speaks about the Holy Spirit coming. In the process, Jesus makes certain promises and assurances about the Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains the Holy Spirit will be coming to glorify me, to convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit will remind you and teach you the things that you haven't understood or you may not remember. The Holy Spirit will bear witness to me. The Holy Spirit will confirm that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me and I am in you. And so Jesus gives very clear instructions and teachings and promises about the Holy Spirit. I put those on a checklist for us last week in the handout. There were like 17 of them that we worked through. And my intention was to go from there to the book of Acts and watch how each one of of the occurrences and references to the Spirit and His working in Acts is directly linked to what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. I thought this will be a great way to just work through this. So I send my lesson out last week to the 75 or so people that, that uh, get it and, and have an opportunity to comment on it. And I got an email back from uh, Dr. John Monson. Now, you all know Dr. Monson. He's a friend of this class. He comes to the class when he's in Houston. He's here this morning. Where are you, John? Stand up. Let everybody see you. Compare you to the picture. Same jacket. Same shirt, same glasses, but a little less hair. Um, So I get an email back from Dr. Monson. And Dr. Monson is an Old Testament scholar, an Old Testament professor who offices immediately next door to Dr. Carson. If you appreciated Dr. Carson being here this morning, it is because Dr. Monson is the one who convinced him to come. Truly. Convinced him to come to the library and can, yeah, thank you, John. So uh, 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 anyway, so um, I get my email back on the, the lesson where I'm digesting through the gospel of John on the Holy Spirit. And Monson sends me back this thing that says, uh, do the Old Testament. You know, talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And I think, well, that's typical of my friend, the Old Testament scholar, but we're in the New Testament now. And I put a sentence in there that said, we could look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but that's another lesson. And he sends back me another email says, do the Old Testament, do the Old Testament. And I thought, well, that's nice. And I just kind of, yeah, I appreciate you and love you, John. You're a good man. And then I get another email from him, do the Old Testament, do the Old Testament. So I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, it sort of wears out. I want to look at the Holy Spirit in Acts. But maybe we should look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament for just a moment. So Dr. John Monson is the reason for this lesson today. But if we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in Acts, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, we we have to not just look backwards, we have to look sideways too. We need to look at the Holy Spirit in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The goal is... As Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit to his apostles, and he gives that teaching in John 14, 15, and 16, we need to try and think about what the apostles understood. And not just us. 
Because we live 2,000 years almost later. And we are steeped in a theology and, and understanding of the Holy Spirit that has come through church history. Now, we may say the Apostles' Creed, which has the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But even though it's called the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles did not write that creed. We have evidence of that line in the second century. We have it in Greek in the fourth century. We have it in Latin about the same time. But that's not a biblical creed in the sense of the Bible has it in it. It's, it is a biblical creed in the sense that it reflects faith that we can understand from Scripture. But I believe in the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit. And we think of the Holy Spirit after thousands of years of the church. And that is not the concept that the apostles would have had in their minds when Jesus gave those teachings in John 14, 15, and 16. So I want to look at those, and we'll take just a moment. We probably have about 20 minutes or so before Dr. Carson comes in here. So we will look at the Holy Spirit. Now, this may stun some of you. The phrase... Holy Spirit is found in the Old Testament three times. And that's all. Only three times in the Old Testament do we read the phrase Holy Spirit. First, Psalm 51, referenced by Dr. Carson this morning. When David prays that psalm to God. Psalm 51, verse 11, he prays, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's the first occurrence. The other two occurrences come in two successive verses in the prophet, as we say here, Dr. Carson, Isaiah. They rebelled, Isaiah 63, 10 and 11. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy. It says, but God remembered Moses. And he remembered these things and said, where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Those are the only three times you will read Holy Spirit in the Old Testament as that phrase. Ruach Kodesh, Holy Spirit, or Spirit Holy, only three places. Now, does that mean, some of you are saying, a few of you are saying, so is the Holy Spirit mentioned only three times? No. I was very careful with my words. That phrase, Holy Spirit, is used only three times. But the Holy Spirit is talked about more than the phrase, he's just not called the Holy Spirit. So, let's look at it for a moment. The Hebrew word for spirit is pronounced ruach. You ought to have to say it. Ruach. Thank you. And when we read that word, it's found in the Old Testament 40 some odd times. It's not always a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's not always a reference even to the Spirit of God. Very clearly sometimes it's called the Spirit of God. Genesis 1, and the Spirit of God moved over the face of the deep. Okay. So we have the Spirit of God used. You'll read about the Spirit of Yahweh as well. So you've got that, but you'll also find that word translated wind. So when God brings a wind into, in, into Egypt in the chapters in Exodus, and God brings the wind that brings in the locusts, it's ruach. Um, you'll find it translated for evil spirits. There are spirits of evil. There are same word, evil spirits. 
you'll find the same word used for breath. It's, it's the, the breath of, of uh, God in places, but it's the breath of man in other places. You'll find the same word used for the spirit of a man. It's not a different word. You'll find the same word used for the spirit of the people, the national spirit. In that sense, it's not totally different than our English word spirit. Our English word spirit is this idea sometimes of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes I can talk about George being a spirited individual. Or we can talk about the team spirit of the Rockets and the letdown last night. We can talk about the spirit of America, the spirit of 76. There are lots of ways that we use the word as well. We can also see hints of this in the idea of wind or breath. Because it's, it's in a sense that spirit of, of breath is a life force. By the way, when someone quits breathing, historically people thought their spirit, their breath, had left their body. They gave up the ghost. And that is directly related linguistically to why the King James Version, instead of calling the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls him the Holy Ghost. It's that idea of the ghost is the breath, it's the power, it's the life. And when you give up the ghost, you give up the breath, you give up the spirit in our language. All linked. Anyway. All right, let's keep going. So in the Old Testament, if we're going to focus on the spirit of God or the spirit of the Lord... The Holy Spirit. We'll see different things about him. We'll see that the Holy Spirit is not in all of God's people. The Holy Spirit is in select people at select times. So in Exodus 31, when God's getting ready for the Israelites to build the Ark of the Covenant, he tells Moses, I've put my spirit in Bezalel. And the reason why is so Bezalel will have the creativity, the skill, the knowledge, the wisdom, all of the tools he needs to pull off building this Ark of the Covenant because it needs to be done just right. So God gives his spirit so that, that uh, uh, Bezalel can do that. You'll read about it in Numbers 11 where God says these 70 elders are supposed to help Moses. So God takes some of the spirit that he's given Moses and puts it on those 70 elders so they can work together with Moses. Select people. Select time. There are places in Judges where God's spirit comes and is anointed on one of the leaders of the army so that the armies can be led by the spirit of God. Certain people, certain times. Uh, you, can, you can see Saul is anointed by God. And Saul has the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God anoints him. Until Saul in disobedience causes God to remove God's Spirit from him. And then God's Spirit goes on to David. On select people for a select time. David... In the process of, of grieving over his Bathsheba sin and the Uriah sin and all of the sin that's involved. Praise God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Recognizing that God puts it on selectively, removes it selectively. In the prophets, you'll find Ezekiel and other prophets saying, The Spirit of the Lord came upon me. And here's the prophetic word that I got. So the Spirit comes... On select people for a select time. Now, if you were here last week, I want you to already be synthesizing differences between the Spirit in the Old Testament and what Jesus said. Because Jesus says that when I get, send you this helper, the Spirit of truth, he will not depart. It's not going to be a select time. It's not the kind of thing where you get the Holy Spirit until you mess up. Then whoop! 
That's not what Jesus is saying. So start thinking through how there's going to be something different that Jesus is about and the Holy Spirit is about. Now, that's the Spirit of God in select people. There's another aspect of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, and those are messianic prophecies. There are places in the Old Testament where the Messiah, the anointed, is spoken of, and the Spirit is associated with the coming Messiah. Um, we've got a couple of passages. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. If we've got a moment. How are we doing time-wise? Ah, oh, yeah, we've got all the time in the world. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. A passage that a lot of you will know as a messianic passage. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord, the Ruach Adonai, the Ruach Yahweh, actually, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, Chachmah, and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of Yahweh. See, the Spirit's not called the Holy Spirit there, but he's called the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, all of these things, the spirit will be upon the Messiah. We can find it in other passages if we are going to keep looking. Uh, Isaiah 61, 1 is uh, another passage you'll be familiar with. And it's, it's uh, important. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, bind the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives. Okay? That's the passage that, that Matthew tells us Jesus read in the synagogue and then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and said, today this passage is fulfilled in your presence. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon the Messiah. And so we see it there. We see it in another passage, uh, Isaiah 42, 1. is actually a, a really neat passage because of the way it reads and the way it's fulfilled. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit Upon him, he'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Okay, that's Jesus, right? It's a messianic promise of Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit upon him. Now, Jesus has the spirit of God in fullness, but... Where do you, can you think of a New Testament passage that's echoing this? When Jesus goes to be baptized, the voice from heaven, instead of servant, it says, Son, behold my son, with whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. And the Spirit descends like a dove and rests upon him. It's a very pictorial uh, fulfillment of this prophecy. So we see, if we can go back to the PowerPoint, we see the Holy Spirit, both in the Old Testament, dealing with select people for a select time. We see the Holy Spirit in reference to the Messianic prophecies. We also see the Holy Spirit spoken about as something that's going to happen in the future in a special way. A bright future is ahead. Joel. In the prophet Joel, the second chapter, verses 28 and 29, we read the following. And it shall come to pass afterward, this is in the future, that I will pour out my flesh upon, my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men dream dreams. Your young men see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit. 
And Joel is saying there's going to come a day where all of God's children have his spirit. It's no longer only on select people. We'll see Peter quote this in Acts 2 on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. But it's referenced by Jesus as well. This is what's coming. The Old Testament, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. The Old Testament does a brilliant job, as you would expect God's scripture to do. But I am amazed at the, 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 the brilliance of how the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus. The very things Jesus says the Old Testament uh, says the Holy Spirit will do more fully, the Holy Spirit's already doing. Whether the Holy Spirit's indwelling certain people to build the Ark of the Covenant, which is a reflection of the mercy seat upon which the sacrifice of Christ is to be. If it's the Holy Spirit uh, instructing God's people to establish God's kingdom so that, that through the seed of Abraham the promise can be fulfilled, those links to the chain that Dr. Carson talked about this morning, using a different phrase, but that, that principle. The Holy Spirit inspires the prophets to prophesy about the coming Messiah. The Holy Spirit is promised to come upon all of God's servants to give them direct revelation and understanding of who God is. I, by that, I don't mean it saying that, gee, we get to write our own scriptures. That revelation may have been a poorly chosen word. But at least an understanding of revelation. So that's the backward look. Dr. John, can I move on now past the Old Testament? Okay, we'll move past the Old Testament. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit in the middle. I think by my count, I've got five and a half minutes. And I don't have points for home because Dr. Carson's our points for home guy. I want to talk about the Holy Spirit in the middle. Because while we can say what we say in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we read about the Holy Spirit using that phrase a whole lot. Between the end of the Old Testament and the time of the New, and recognize the Dead Sea Scrolls were written somewhere between 250 B.C. to 70 A.D. Most of them before the time of Christ. The passage that I want to show you that I've got up here, it's called 4Q422. Put that in your memory. Waste a few gray cells on it. It'll really help you in life. That fragment is dated during, to the Hasmonean time. So figure about 135 to maybe 35 B.C. So this is before the time of Christ. We've reached a point with the Dead Sea Scrolls where the Jews were very hesitant to say not only the name of God... But to even say God, they would use the, the word God and they would write it. But there were lots of times where instead of writing it, they would substitute other things. They might substitute an ancient Hebrew script for Yahweh. They might put in dots for the four letters of Yahweh instead of using his name, God's name. Or they might just refer to God as HaKodesh, the Holy because God is the holy. So there is a time where the holy becomes a label for God. A way of referring to God. He is the holy one. He's the holy. And we see this reflected in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. So the scroll that I've put up here. And you're thinking, is that out of focus? Or does he have a really poor scanner? Neither. That thing's 2,000 years old. You'd be faded too after 2,000 years. That lower right hand is kind of faded. I've reproduced, because a few of you want to see those letters, I've reproduced the Hebrew underneath it. I've brought us the, one of the volumes that, that are published with this, and I'll show you the actual photographic plate of it. 
Um, although it's a sideways plate. Let's see. Yeah, it doesn't really do us much, does it? See, that's just what it looks like. We're looking at this line here. They determine that's line 7. Line 7. And here's what line 7 says. Let me show you how it's been translated here. It's been translated somewhere here. Ah, here we go. Translation. See, this is a paraphrase. This, um, this is a paraphrase of Genesis and Exodus on this scroll. That's what this scroll is. It's like, uh, well, it's a paraphrase. Whatever you think a paraphrase is. Um, so here's the translation of this key part of the paraphrase. And I actually have found a book I won't write in. These things are exorbitant. Okay. The heavens and the earth, this is Genesis 1, paraphrased. All their hosts he made by his word. We know that, by the way, right? Because God spoke and it came to be. This also is consistent with John's usage of the word, word. In the beginning was the word. Nothing was made but through the word. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had been doing, and his Holy Spirit. So he rests on the seventh day from the work that he and his Holy Spirit had been doing. But if you go back and read Genesis 1, being paraphrased, Genesis 1 says the Spirit of God. But they don't use the word God. Instead, they say the Spirit of the Holy. The Holy Spirit. And if you go through the scrolls, you'll see the Holy Spirit used in so many different ways. If we go back to the PowerPoint, in so many different times. The Holy Spirit is clearly the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit, if you read another one of the scrolls. uh, Whoa, that's a really poor slide. Let me see if it gets any better. Oh, no, not at all. Okay, This uh, this is actually, give me just a second. Um. I want, to, I want you to read two passages out of the scrolls. So um, we'll do this. We'll hit delete. We'll go back and pop that puppy back up there. Oh, that doesn't work because you're on a whole different system. Okay, forget that. How do we do this? This is what we'll do instead. We'll go to a decent slide. The Holy Spirit is the key to understanding God. I can read to you texts... In here, I've got texts that show, here is a passage straight from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, I know from the understanding that comes from you, God, that through your goodwill toward a person, you multiply his portion in your Holy Spirit. Thus, you draw that man closer to your understanding. The Holy Spirit in the scrolls is key to the understanding of God. Nobody understands God but the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is the key to understanding God. This is echoed by Paul. Paul Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2. No one understands the thoughts of God but the Spirit. And if you want to understand God, you need the Holy Spirit to do it. That's the understanding of what the Holy Spirit was about. The Holy Spirit's divulging this part of God. And I think Dr. Carson is close. So let me bring this to a close. Hear me on this. You'll find lots of different names for the Holy Spirit. You'll find lots of different purposes for the Holy Spirit. But they're all wrapped up in glorifying Jesus and exalting him. Do we have Dr. Carson mic'd? One second. So... All of the references to the Holy Spirit, they're never exalting the Holy Spirit. They're always in reference to God's plan and purpose and the exaltation of Christ. And it's true whether we're looking in the Old Testament or whether we're looking in the New. And we'll see that more. But for now, I want to bring up here Dr. Carson and a couple of stools. And we will shift from the Holy Spirit to a man of God. Dr. Carson, would you please come join us? Sure. Thank you. Well, let my... me tell you, this is a big step down from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and I would, as much as I admire this man, I cannot argue that point. Um, um, 
but it's a big step up from the guy who was talking about the Holy Spirit. So, you know, we're in middle ground. Um, did you just preach the same message to the high school class that we had the blessing of hearing? Adapted somewhat for a younger age. But, yes, the same text. Did you teach my daughter, who was in there right now, how to withstand temptation and how important it is to do so? Well, you can ask her when you get home. <laughs> better, better yet, you'll find out if she's really learned it by just observing her over the next little while. Well, this is a question that obviously we all have to learn again and again and again. It's not something you learn once, is it? at the end of the day. As I was sitting there listening to you this morning in the 930 service, I was thinking, I'm so thankful you're not only blessing us with this message, but that you will take time out as a man of, of your schedule and a man of your calling to speak to our high school students. And I want to thank you. For that. Well, thank you. There's, there, there's quite an age range in there. There's some that are 13, 14, and so on. And um, I, I probably would have shifted gears a bit more if I'd realized how many of them there were. But by the time you get to 16, 17, 18, you're talking about sex. Let me tell you, they're glued on every word you say. <laughs> that's, that's true. Okay. Um, uh, and so now we shift from that subject. Dr. Carson, uh, uh, we've got a lot of people who heard you last night, and, and obviously most everybody who heard you this morning. Um, how old were you when you decided that, that you wanted to spend your life doing these things? Do you mean in ministry and so on? Yes, sir. Uh, that's a bit complicated. Um, I, I did not intend to go this route at all. My first degree was chemistry. And I intended to do organic synthesis as a Ph.D. at Cornell and so on. My life was all planned out. I was working for the federal government of Canada in air pollution. And then the Lord um, began to call me toward Christian ministry. I was um, uh, about 20. And there were a number of things that were shifting over. I would finished the degree by the time I was 20, the first degree. And, um, and I... Uh, I was working in a, in a lab in, in Canada, and I discovered that my fellow chemists were of two sorts. There were the older ones who uh, were waiting for retirement. They could hardly wait to get out of there. And there were the younger ones who were dreaming of Nobel Prizes. And, and I wasn't in either camp. I was enjoying what I was doing. It was a great place to work and government budgets, and it, it, it was fun. But at the same time, I was also working with a, a Christian who was trying to plant a church a little farther up the Ottawa Valley on the weekends. And that was capturing more and more, more of my time and energy, uh, even though I was working full-time for the government. And um, a chorus I learned as a child began to play in my mind. I couldn't get rid of it. Um, by and by, when I look on his face, beautiful face, thorn-shadowed face, by and by, when I look on his face, I'll wish I had given him more. Now, I'm not denying that God calls somebody to be a, a garbage man or a chemist or a lawyer even. <laughs> yeah. but, but on the other hand, um, that's the way it was playing out in my mind. And the, the end of that summer, I heard a missionary to Haiti uh, preach a sermon from Ezekiel 29. I sought for a man to stand in the gap before me for my people, but I found none. And that became a, a turning point. So it was a, a number of things that were working out in my life around that time. And I gave up the dream of Cornell and went and started studying for the ministry. You have written or edited 57 books, I believe, that we have at least in our library. Um, do you have a favorite? No. Do you have one that you would recommend people... Turn to as a um, if if they wanted to try and, and start into studying the word. Do you have one that you would really say, "Hey, this is this is a good place to start"? No. <laughs> now, and I'll tell you why. I'm really not trying to be difficult. Um, you know, it might surprise you, but I'm I'm really not trying to be difficult. Um, uh, and, and that's because people come at things from some so many different levels and. And my own interests in writing have been so diverse. So one book that I wrote was called The God Who Is There. And it goes right through the whole Bible in 14 chapters. 
and there's a study guide that goes with it. There's a video series that goes with it. So if a person doesn't know anything about the Bible or knows something about the Bible in terms of bitty stories but doesn't know how the Bible hangs together, then I might recommend that book simply because it begins to lay down the whole storyline. If, on the other hand, somebody is beginning to teach the Bible and wants some good principles of care and interpretation, not make silly mistakes, then I wrote a little book called Exegetical Fallacies. And they might read that one. But that might become a little depressing for some people if um, they read it too soon or, or before they got enough of the storyline under their belt and, and so forth. So a lot depends on, on who they are and where they're coming from. One of the characters that we've interacted with in our class a good bit uh, through his written, written material is Bart Ehrman. Do you know? Uh, I do. Bart I do. Ehrman? I do. Would you, My dear friend Bart. Yeah. Would you, <laughs> would you give us sort of your assessment? Uh, uh, I'll tell you this story. I was in a uh, uh, meeting with uh, the dean of uh, St. John's Law School uh, last week in New York. And I thought I was in there to talk about law. And he, within 10 minutes, said, oh, hey, talk to me about Bart Ehrman. Mm. Hey, uh, this, the, the dean is a devout Catholic. He said that he had read Bart's, a couple of Bart's popular works and had really been disturbed by mm. them. And I uh, wanted to know my thoughts. Uh, Bart Ehrman gets out there. A lot of people read his stuff. Mm. What uh, can you tell us? Well, give us Bart Ehrman in a nutshell. Well, you must understand that um, in addition to evangelical organizations like the Evangelical Theological Society, there are some professional societies, so-called, of biblical scholars, like Society of Biblical Literature, Society of New Testament Studies, and so on. And in those sorts of circles, then you get evangelicals and Catholics and liberals and neobardians and all the rest. They're, they're, all, they're all together in these so-called professional societies. So along the line, therefore, eventually I get to meet everybody who's writing in the field. So it's in that context that, um, that, that, that I've got to know Bart. I, he's not a bosom buddy, but, but our paths have crossed. And I said something in print six months ago or so that he caught and he wanted to find out more about the sources. So he emailed me and I answered him and so on. So that sort of thing happens. And then I preached in the universities in the Carolinas too because the student groups sometimes ask me to do so. So you've got to understand there's a matrix in which we get to know him. Bart uh, went to Moody. Then he went to Wheaton. And then he went to Princeton in that sequence. And by the time he got to Princeton, he was beginning to lose his faith. Uh, he felt that the foundations that had been given him in the previous two schools couldn't stand up to the rigor of the um, skepticism that he was being fed at Princeton. And he, he not only lost his faith, but in time he gloried in his loss. In other words, he felt that the faith that he had was just plain wrong. It was misguided. And, and so... Uh, as sometimes happens when people have that pilgrimage, they do a pendulum swing. I mean, I, I, I can introduce you to all kinds of old-fashioned liberals who have been liberals all their lives, and there's not an edge to them. I mean, I think that they're wrong, but they're not mean about it. And you can have serious conversations with them, and some of them get converted in due course. Um, uh, I remember when I was studying under somebody at Cambridge, a long, when I was doing doctoral studies a long, long time ago, um, this fellow was streets ahead of me intellectually at that point and was raising all kinds of difficult questions. But he wasn't doing so with malice. He, it was the whole frame of reference in which he came. And I was struggling to catch up and answer questions. And I wrote to my, my parents, who, who were godly folk. Dad was a pastor and so on, but had no, no heritage of scholarship or advanced training or anything like that. I wrote to them about this, these challenges I was facing. And my mother wrote back, we're praying that your supervisor will get converted, dear, which <laughs> sort, of, sort of put it at a sort of fundamental level that, that makes important things important things, too. You know, I couldn't help but smiling when I saw that. And of course, as the years go by, you learn more and you can figure out how to answer a lot of these things. Well, Bart comes from not a traditional evangelical background, a liberal background, but a traditional evangelical background and has done a pendulum swing. So that he openly says, he openly avows, he openly has as his goal the dismantling of the faith of the hundreds of young students who take his courses at, uh, at, uh, in the Carolinas. And, and, and he delights to do it. He, from his point of view, he is uh, enlightening them. He's teaching them a better way. He's destroying a faith that has no credibility. And, and there is, you can tell in his writings, a kind of cheerful glee at destroying the faith of, 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 of young people. 
And so he is capable of the most advanced, technical, careful, probing scholarship. But he's also capable of the kind of apologetics of, of, of um, liberalism, apologetics for liberalism, that is clever rhetorically and manipulative, but it's not really good scholarship. It's, it's, it's pretty sloppy stuff. And a lot of what he says, he's merely packaging in new, fresh, inviting, exciting ways, stuff that has been debated in the church for a century and a half or so, where there are really a lot of good answers that are already given. But he scores points, and he, 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 he's, he's loved on the left, and he's sometimes hated. He shouldn't be hated. He, he should be pitied on the right, because... Whenever I think of Bart Ehrman, I think of one particular, one particular biblical text. For those who destroy the faith of one of these little ones, it would be better for them that a millstone be hung around his neck and that he be thrown into the deepest sea. I feel sorry for Bart Ehrman. He will answer to God. I pray that the Lord will have mercy on him before it's too late. Amen. Okay, you travel the world. You certainly travel America. You are in tuned. Uh, before I ask this question, let me take a step back. Some may not be familiar with the Gospel Coalition. Would you tell us about the Gospel Coalition and why everyone ought to have it on their web browser to click on to? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because I teach at Trinity, and Trinity is a very international place, I was already traveling around the world. I've been on every continent except Antarctica many, many times. And, and so Trinity's got these connections, and therefore I have these connections uh, around the world. But in 2002, um, I met up with Tim Keller. Is that a name that you know here? Tim Keller is a Presbyterian minister um, belonging to the PCA in downtown New York in Manhattan. And um, uh, on Easter Sunday, for example, I know that in the various congregations uh, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, they had 9,700 people there. And most of these are converts. The average age in the church is 31 or 32, and they're, they're part of New York City's yuppie crowd. You know, it's, 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 those are the people that are getting converted under his ministry. And we had become friends through another project, but we met over a sidewalk cafe in Manhattan in 2002 and began to ask the question, what would it take to hold up a national entity that was boldly defending historic confessional evangelicalism. What, what would it take? So 2004, we invited about 40 ministers from different denominations, all deeply confessional, all deeply committed to expository ministry, all evangelistic, not all white. We made sure that we had African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans there. This was not going to be a white man's club. This is not the 1960s. And um, within that framework, then we, we, we began to pray and ask what, what it would take, what it would look like. And after three days of getting to know one another, praying for each other quite a lot, um, Tim and I then had a mandate to, to... I wrote a statement of faith. He wrote a, a theological vision of ministry. The next year, 2005, 2005, yeah, uh, we began to argue about these things line by line, paragraph by paragraph, to make sure we were all on the same page. That went all the way to 2006. By 2007, then, we, that, that was initially just called the pastor's colloquium. It was all off camera. We were trying to see where it would go. By 2007, then, we had received a mandate to start something we call the pastor's colloquium. We ran a little conference at Trinity, 600 people, and the average age was very low. Uh, 80% were under the age of 40, and we thought, this is saying something. And our aim was to be deeply, deeply confessional, deeply biblical, but cross denominations. Um, thick theology, not lowest common denominator theology, um, expository ministry, and, and to focus on the main things. The gospel is not that little thing that tips you into the kingdom and then all of your discipling courses actually change your life. The gospel understood in the scripture is a big thing. It's the power of God unto wholeness. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles and so forth. It's, it's the big thing. It controls so much of, of the Bible's self-understanding. Even the Christian ethics stem from the gospel. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a gospel motivation. Forgive one another as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That's a gospel motivation. Do you see? It was going to be gospel-driven in a thick biblical sense. So out of this came, uh, partly because we saw the age, we decided to go as digital as we could. 
and we started running conferences along certain lines so that our website today, thegospelcoalition.org, gets about 4 million hits a month. Uh, if we're on hot topics, it now gets about 8 million hits a month. Um, there are about 50,000 sermons there that are all expository, all indexed by Bible and speaker and text and so on. But there are quite a number of bloggers on the site. We only will accept bloggers that we vet, and they have to be in line with us doctrinally, and they must not be mean. There's an awful lot of blogging out there that is just plain mean. If they're mean, we sit on them or we get rid of them. We don't, we don't want mean people. And, and so within that framework, we want uh, the gospel articulated, promoted. And out of this, we run conferences. We had one a couple of weeks ago in Orlando, the National Conference. With, and before that, we had a pre-conference on world evangelism. We've regionalized. There are 10 regions going on 13 in this country. And there are parallel organizations that are growing up in, in um, Francophone Europe, in Germany, um, and, and Poland and, and elsewhere, and we're linked with an organization in Brazil and so on. So this has become a kind of worldwide movement as well, and we're putting more and more stuff online. So that the main plenaries at this last conference, for example, we had them simultaneously translated and simultaneously broadcast on the web in six languages. So, so, so there was English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Farsi, and Mandarin. And next conference, the next conference is a women's conference next year in Orlando. We'll have about 5,000 women, we expect. We hope to add Arabic and um, Russian. And, and this stuff is simulcast. And then it's posted on the, line, on the, on the website two or three uh, weeks later um, in all of those languages as well. We had 110 workshops. All of that stuff was only in English. That, that'll all be downloadable for free. Everything that we do is free. Um, and, 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 and so be, because we live in a digital age, things cross national borders and ethnic borders and so on. And then there are many parts of the world where they don't have good c computer access or good Internet access. And we're trying to produce more printed materials for them. Um, in this past year, we produced materials in 11 languages for 43 countries. And we're ramping that side up as well for the poorest of the poor and, and so forth. So all of this has come about, really, in just a few years. And our perception is that God is doing something that surprises us. It's, it's not that we, we had a great vision and we planned all this in a sidewalk cafe in 2002. I mean, I wish we could claim that, but we can't. We started asking questions, that's all. And the Lord has done this. with At our meetings, 70 or 80% are under the age of 40. What, what, what can I say? I'm the old geezer in the Gospel Coalition. Our executive director is 36. Our head editorial stuff on the web is 32. Um, that, that, that's, that's what's going on. The Lord is raising up a whole new generation now that's really very remarkable. And so I'm, I'm pretty encouraged by what's, by what's going on. And so... Yeah. All right, then let's shift gears from that positive note. Let me ask you this. What cultural challenges do you see, uh, one, two, however many you need to name, but, but what cultural challenges do you see first for the nation of America? And then I'm going to ask you about for the church in particular. It's not easy to answer that question, partly because there are somewhat different challenges in different parts of the nation, too. Okay. So that the sheer secularism of the Pacific Northwest and the New England states has a different feel from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where it's still difficult to find somebody who will admit to not being a Christian. So the challenges are a bit different depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, nevertheless, it's obviously easy to mention some things that are pretty high profile. Um, there is a new definition that's come along to the notion of tolerance. The new notion of tolerance is unlike the notion of tolerance that has prevailed until about 25 years ago. And this new tolerance is massively intolerant. And it is increasingly soliciting the power of the state to squash anybody that disagrees with it. The old tolerance said, I may dislike what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. The new tolerance says, if you're really tolerant, you're not going to, be, you're not going to say that anybody else is wrong in whatever dimensions. It, you know. So if you're a capitalist, you can't say that communists are wrong. If you're a communist, you can't say that capitalists are wrong. It's just a different perspective. If you're a, a, a Muslim, if you're tolerant, then you don't say Christians are wrong. If you're a Christian, you can't say Muslims are wrong. You can't say Jews are wrong. You can't say Buddhists are wrong. You, you tolerate people. If you go around thinking that they're wrong, then, then you're already intolerant, do, 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 do you see? Now, what this does is... It, it, it eviscerates any possibility of serious conversation. 
Moreover, it's massively dishonest because a devout Muslim and a devout Christian really do argue very differently on many, many issues. A devout Buddhist and a devout Muslim argue very differently. And, and, and they ought to be able to argue their corners in the free marketplace of ideas with both sides telling the others why they're wrong. Do you, do you see? But if, on the other hand, you start saying, oh, I'm not allowed to say that you're wrong. I mean, it, it all depends on your point of view and you're as right as I am, I'm as wrong as you are. Um, then, then what you you've done is killed any possibility of serious conversation. What you've done is killed the possibility of maintaining the ele an, an elevated view of the importance of truth. The important thing now is simply not to say that anybody's wrong. So there are major statements coming out of the Canadian government, coming out of the UN. We tolerate everything except intolerance. The trouble is it's this new intolerance, and what it means is if you don't agree with this new intolerant, this new definition of tolerance, then you're intolerant. <laughs> and so it, it, is, it is intellectually um, perverse, and it is uh, morally compromised. It, and people don't see just how compromised they, they really are, how silly the whole thing is. Um, and this then, in turn, affects um, the way we go about handling issues like uh, homosexuality. Now, you do not want to make homosexuality the ultimate sin. You don't want to do that. There are lots of other sins, too. But on the other hand, you, you still, if you're a Christian, have to be faithful to what Scripture says. And you still want to see men and women from every conceivable background being genuinely converted. And I could tell you of many conversions from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of religions, all kinds of ethnic groups, all kinds of sexual orientations being genuinely converted by the gospel of Christ with, with complex results that I, I'm more than happy to talk to you about. But, but nevertheless, the power of God is still the power of God unto salvation. The trouble is the other side will say, if you even say that people ought to be converted from that background or that there's anything wrong with it, then you're intolerant so that you can't even have a conversation about it. You, you, you're already dismissed. You're already marginalized. And if that gets encrusted in law that's bound up with civil rights, then even within my lifetime, we could see in this country people going to jail uh, over issues of, of things like that. It's, it's becoming a complex issue. In, in other words, one of the steps that has happened is that all kinds of issues which were considered debatable morally, people arguing different corners, but debatable mor morally, were debatable morally because they were what is often said today to be pre-political. That is, before you start advocating the politics of something, there are moral issues to be resolved. It's pre-political. So that means you talk about rights and wrongs. Catholics then would refer to natural law. Um, evangelical Christians often spoke of the law written on the heart using the language from Romans. But those are all pre-political issues. Do you, do you see, before you start talking about what you do judicially, what you start doing legislatively, or what you start doing legally, what place the, 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 the nation should have, for example, in punishing pedophilia, what, what should it do or not do? Do you, do you see, before you do things like that, you talk about what's right and wrong. In other words, all kinds of questions in the past have been widely seen as being pre-political. But what's happening on the far left today is that more and more issues are, are never admitted to be pre-political. They are only political. So that the way you establish what's right and wrong is by legislation and or appeal to the judiciary to come down with one side or other in the name of the Constitution, which is very cleverly read. And, 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 and so suddenly it's very difficult to engage in moral intercourse, in, in, in broadband sweeping discussion of good and evil. Whenever somebody says that something or some movement or other is evil, the, the press are all over you for, how dare you say that something is evil? I mean, what sort of intolerant person are you? But if you've got to the place where you can't be outraged by evil, you're on the precipice of a, of a, a massive totalitarianism from left to right. I mean, it really is a dangerous kind of world. And I have no idea how that's going to play out. So those are some of the pressures that are, are, are playing out in our society. Um, there are all kinds of pressures coming along in our society out of the regular things, endless consumerism, um, the impact of the digital world, which has massive potential for good and massive potential for evil. Uh, the, the same website that gives us the Gospel Coalition, um, the same web uh, gives us uh, endless free porn. Um, it's not that people invented porn with a web, but the ready access to it is, is, is stunningly abysmal. Uh, do you realize that there's more money made in America today out of porn than from um, 
hard liquor, hard drugs, and one more, and cigarettes combined. There's more money made out of porn. And so you, you, you realize that that's having a play on our families, on our institutions, on our marriages, on our children, on our tolerance levels, on what we think is funny, uh, on, on human sexuality, on, on so many things. Do, do, do you see? That too is, is, is part of the web. The, the web has is, is got potential for huge good. It's got potential for abysmal evil. And, 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 and that too is, is part of the urgency of our, of our day and age. Is, does that, that's that's only scratching at the edge. But uh. All right, we have two minutes. In two minutes, <laughs> what are the challenges you see facing the church? Or what one challenge should we be praying about and trying to address? Again, I, I, two minutes. I would argue that, boy, that really does vary a lot around the country. You, you know? uh, but at the risk of, of sounding... Too, too simplistic. The most important challenge always is preserving and articulating and proclaiming the richness of the Word of God, the glories of Christ, the power of the gospel. That's always the challenge. Now, it has certain, it has certain shapes, you know, where, where you're in an inner city and there's lots and lots and lots of multiculturalism, multi-ethnic living and so on. Then you want the church to reflect that too. Um, so, so you have to face the fact that 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 racism is still something that has to be fought. Uh, at the same time, uh, greed has to be fought. Um, at the same time, uh, the defense of the nature of truth has to be articulated and fought. Um, not being frightened of university campuses, but getting on them and doing missions and evangelism and outreach in that context rather than just demonizing them has to be handled. Um, in many of our contexts, we have to learn a lot better how to, how to evangelize Muslims. We have so demonized Muslims that we don't know how to evangelize them. You can't evangelize people you don't love. You, you, you can't evangelize homosexuals unless you love them. You can't evangelize Muslims unless you love them. And granted that there are enough Islamists out there, after all, that you still have to acknowledge that God has given the power of the sword to the state. My son's a Marine. I'm, 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 I'm not doubting that. Nevertheless, to tarnish a whole group with one brush so that you don't really love people from another culture. You can't do missionary work unless you love the people to whom you're sent. And nowadays, the people to whom we're sent are all being sent to us. And so somewhere along the line, we, we, we need to learn better how to love people that are very different from us in their sense of humor and their jokes and their smells and their family relationships and the food they eat and all the rest. You can't possibly evangelize them unless you love them. So the church has to learn not only to articulate the truth, defend the truth, proclaim the truth, but also not to do that in a defensive posture, but in a winning, um, humble um, posture. Uh, we're never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there's bread. So we, we, we don't approach this business from an attitude of uh, condescension. Um, you miserable blighters out there, let me tell you the truth, you terrible sinners. I mean, you, you don't win anybody that way, you, you know? And, and so the, the church has got to re recapture that one big time. Thank you very much. Before we dismiss, would you lead us in a word of prayer, please? Sure. Merciful Heavenly Father, we bow before you and acknowledge our utter, ongoing need of you. Your sovereignty is so sweeping that every beat of our heart, every breath we take in, is by your sanction and permission. And if you withdraw your hand from us, we are gone. We recall that it is written, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. So teach us to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. We long on the last day to hear the Master say, Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your Master's happiness. So we pray for one another on this Sunday morning. Undoubtedly, in this room, there are some people here who are carrying horrible burdens. Some have been bereaved. Others are facing terminal illness, either in themselves or 
in loved ones. Grant to them the comforts of the gospel. For although we sorrow and grieve like others, we too are human. We do not sorrow as those who have no hope. For our confidence in, is in Christ Jesus, who, who rose from the dead, and whose resurrection existence is the precursor, the down payment of ours. And Father, as we look at the world around us, moving along at such incredible speeds of change, with a great deal of the change being troubling toward relativizing of evil and more prodigious and bold immorality and arrogance on so many fronts and a carelessness about truth, Lord, we dare to beg of you for mercy, for mercy on the blood-bought church, even for mercy on the nation. We hear of your power in times of revival and blessing in other parts of the world. And we dare to ask, Lord God, while blessing others, do not pass us by. Will you not have mercy on us and bring in reformation and revival beyond all that we have asked or thought so that there's not room enough to contain it? And if instead you bring judgment upon us, then, Lord God, grant us courage and boldness to endure and still to proclaim the truth, to be faithful in small things as well as great. And yet again we bow before you and ask, O Lord God, in wrath remember mercy. In the midst of the years, pour out convicting work by your Holy Spirit to draw men and women to Jesus Christ. How wonderful it would be if in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, we could look back and, and revel in the power of the gospel to raise up a new generation of Christian pastors and Christian defenders of the truth and rising churches full of young converts boldly articulating the truth and the glories of Christ. Oh, Lord, we dare to ask, do it again. Do it again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.